This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Kristen Dolan, and I'm the Assistant Director of Operations and Strategy for the Benioff Center of Microbiome Medicine at UCSF. Tonight's lecture will be presented by Dr. Sergio Baranzini, a distinguished professor of neurology at UCSF. Dr. Baranzini's research focuses on the genetic and molecular mechanisms underlying complex diseases, in particular multiple sclerosis. The research conducted in his group leverages approaches in human genetics, immunology, molecular biology, bioinformatics, and systems biology. Dr. Baranzini and his colleagues are also the creators of SPOKE, an open knowledge network that aims to integrate all publicly available biomedical information. Dr. Baranzini received his PhD in human molecular genetics from the University of Buenos Aires in Argentina. His talk this evening is titled The Gut-Brain Axis, Gut Microbial Influences on Neurological Diseases. Sergio, the floor is yours. Thank you, Christine, and thank you um, for the opportunity to present today. Um, welcome, everybody. So the, the title of my talk is The Gut-Brain Axis and How Gut Microbiome Influences neurological disease. And uh, given my background uh, and my interest um, in genetics and immunology and our focus on multiple sclerosis, which is probably one of the prototypic diseases uh, that uh, intersect uh, the immune system and the central nervous system, I think uh, I'll provide a, a, a rather unique perspective on how the gut and the brain might communicate. And this is what is known as the gut-brain axis. And the reason why the gut and the brain uh, are related are multiple, in fact. Here I'm presenting a, a sketch of the what it will be a, a section of the gut. And here you can see some of the uh, cells that make up the uh, barrier between the blood and the gut. So here's when uh, you will see on the on the left hand side, this is where the um, uh, food uh, will be processed uh, on the gut lumen. And the pyre patches are specializations of, of the membrane of, of the gut that will uh, allow intimate contact between these uh, uh, cells and the immune cells which are circulating in the blood, notably T cells and B cells and dendritic cells. These are immune cells that normally are in the circulation, but particularly in the gut and through the pear patches, maintain an intimate contact with the, what would be the exterior of the body. So this is where a lot of the immune system education about what's going on outside of the body comes from. And this is where our immune cells learn about our exposures, uh, learn about what we're eating, what we're smoking, what we're uh, drinking, what we're exposed to. And there are several mechanisms by which uh, the immune system and, uh, and the gut can transmit that information to the brain, even though they are anatomically distant, there are uh, shortcuts that, that may 
facilitate this communication. Particularly, one of them is the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve innervates uh, uh, the intestines and it goes straight to the central nervous system. So there might be some retrograde transportation of metabolites, small molecules, small proteins that uh, uh, can travel all the way up to the brain. And there has been experiments in which if you severe or cut, transect the vagus nerve, then gene expression changes in the brain occur. And this is because of the absence of that communication between the gut and the brain. Uh, Another uh, mechanism is, of course, the immune-related. So through uh, immune responses, both uh, adaptive and innate, the the brain uh, can uh, um, uh, know what's going on in the in the uh, in the gut. Uh, also, bacterial molecules uh, and, uh, and 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 metabolites can be either transferred through the vagus nerve or through the circulation. So once they are in the blood, they can then pass the blood-brain barrier and get access to the brain, thereby stimulating or inhibiting certain pathways in the brain. So there is uh, a, a, a long uh, um, idea that the gut and the brain are connected, uh, and, and this has been stimulated by uh, the, the, the common uh, uh, belief of, of us having, for example, a gut sensation or when uh, one, one is uh, uh, nervous or anxious, that can be transmitted uh, to uh, uh, gut and, 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 and tummy aches and so on. So there are uh, this uh, intuitively um, uh, lines of communications, but in, the, in recent years, this has become more and more um, known and less and less mysterious. So today, what I'm going to try to do is to show you some uh, evidence that links the gut and the brain, particularly in the context of an autoimmune disease of the central nervous system, which is multiple sclerosis. So if one conducts a uh, literature review of the last 20 years and looks for the words microbiome or microbiota, and I'll define them, uh, as m- microbiota is the community of organisms. You, if you've attended uh, other lectures, you will know microbiota refers to the community of microorganisms that live in a symbiotic state with uh, the host, with us. And the microbiome will represent the aggregation of genetic material from that community. So if one uh, performs a literature review of the last 20 years with the words microbiome or microbiota in the title or the abstract of uh, those articles, one could see an almost exponential growth starting around 2010. And you see, pay attention, this is a logarithmic axis on the Y. And so this is an exponential growth of articles um, referring to the microbiome or microbiota uh, from the year 2000 on, but around, around 2010, diseases of the central nervous system started to be explored. And more and more, every year, there will be doubling or even more of the number of articles that will involve the word 
microbiome or microbiota. And this involves not only multiple sclerosis, but also other neurological conditions and psychiatric conditions uh, as well. So with this in mind, let me uh, uh, remind you that the human gut microbiota, which is one of the richest communities of microbes that live in and around us, is composed of about 10 to the 13 to 10 to the 14 microorganisms. This is more or less uh, uh, equivalent to one to one, one bacterial cell per human cell. So we are about 50% human. Now, the collective microbiome, that means if we start counting the number of genes encoded by each of these different bacterial species, this outnumbers our own genome, our own uh, number of genes by a factor of 100. So humans encode about 35,000, 35,000, uh, 30 to 35,000 genes. Uh, the bacterial microbiome, uh, it's, it, it com- it's composed of about a million different genes. So really humans in this context can be considered superorganisms in, in which whose metabolisms represents really uh, an interaction and an amalgamation of both microbial and human attributes. We, it's well known that humans cannot process certain foods, most notably uh, vegetable uh, fiber, and we need bacterial communities to do that, to extract those valuable metabolites that we need for our subsistence. That's only one of many examples of those metabolisms that uh, are amalgamated. So really, if we think that we are our genes, then we're probably more our microbiome than our genome in terms of sheer numbers. So this is what really motivated uh, me to to go into this direction, coming from a background in genetics uh, and and realizing that the, the microbiome outnumbers our own genome by a factor of 100. I thought this cannot not be important for maintaining health and disease. So just a reminder of the tree of life uh, for those of you who uh, are familiar with uh, taxonomy on the top here, if we are interested in the kingdom bacteria, then uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be talking about phylum. And then the next is class, order, family, all the way down genus and species. I may be talking about genera and species more often, but this is just a reminder uh, of the taxonomy. So just a, a reminder of, of how we came to know the importance of uh, bacteria in um, health and disease. This uh, goes back to um, the early 2000s when the National Institutes of Health um, launched the Human Microbiome Project in which several volunteers provided samples from different body uh, areas, body niches, and the um, bacterial content was sequenced through high-throughput DNA sequencing technology, and those sequences were read and contrasted to existing databases, databases, and we were able to identify which bacteria those sequences came from. And through that kind of analysis, we were able for the first time, or the community, uh, 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 the scientific community was uh, 
able for the first time to see how similar or dissimilar were different communities of bacteria coming from different individuals, but from the same niche. So if you look at all of this in the oral cavity, so these are about a hundred different samples from a hundred different individuals. And you can see that the samples cluster. So when, whenever two of these dots are closer uh, each other to each other, that represents similarity across the entire DNA sequence of the microbiome. And you can see how the samples cluster by body niche rather than by individual. So all the gastrointestinal samples clustered together, all the oral samples clustered together, and all the skin samples clustered together, suggesting, again, very, very different bacterial niches in, the, in different body areas, which makes sense, thinking that different body areas have different pH, different uh, humidity, different uh, uh, nutrients, and so on, that will allow the different uh, types of bacteria to um, to want to uh, make a niche there. So one other aspect uh, that I think it's really, really important is that um, this slide also coming from the Human Microbiome pro uh, Project uh, highlighted is that if you look at the composition, and this is at the phylum level, so remember the tree of life, phylum is all the way almost to the top. So we're looking at, at, at big, big differences here. If, if you look at different individuals, and this uh, each of these uh, panels represents about 100 individuals, you see that the composition of the different phyla is wildly variable across different individuals within a particular niche. This is the uh, nose, this is the mouth, this is uh, uh, stool, and so on. So you see high variability. However, when the same data is analyzed in the context, not only who's there, so which bacterial taxa is that DNA coming from, but what are the metabolic pathways that those bacterial taxa are capable of, then that becomes a lot more homogeneous. So you see now that across different individuals, now there's not such a big variation when one looks at the different biological and biochemical pathways. So what that teaches us is that to a certain extent, it doesn't really matter who's there as long as they are performing a certain function. So it's, it's, it, we all need to process, uh, um, for example, vegetable fiber, but there are many different bacteria that can do that. So it, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter really which bacteria is doing the job as long as some is. So this is what this uh, slide shows. And this is another uh, interesting um, slide that uh, relates to diet. And, and this is an interesting one because it, it really paints a clear picture of how much diet dominates the bacterial taxa that uh, live in our gut. If we change our diets, the bacterial taxa that live in, uh, in our guts will definitely change. This is a slide that was made... Um, 
by going to a zoo and collecting stool samples from different kind of animals uh, and, and then sequencing their, uh, the, the DNA that was in, in person in the stool. So identifying the, the bacteria in those samples. And then the, they're colored by the diet of the animals that uh, those samples came from. And you can see how they clustered by whether they were herbivores or carnivores or omnivores. And this is a very, very interesting um, slide because, again, it shows the dominant aspect, uh, the dominant role the diet plays uh, in in our uh, bacterial diversity in the gut. So with this in mind, uh, let's let's move on to now the the interactions between uh, gut bacteria, gut microbes, and the immune system. And in this regard, I think it's important to remember that microbes are mostly symbionts, and symbionts means they live in peace with the host. They're not pathogens. Most 99.9% of, of, of microbes are symbionts. They're not pathogens. So actually, uh, we need them. We need them to, to have a healthy uh, metabolism. And among the many functions that gut microbes play, they help, as I mentioned at the beginning, shape immune responses through the interaction of their metabolism with ours. And I'm showing, uh, I'm highlighting a couple of interesting examples uh, here. For example, the bacteria Bacteroides fragilis has been uh, known to activate a particular kind of immune receptor called toll-like receptor two through a metabolite called polysaccharide A that is part of the bacterial wall. And that uh, polysaccharide stimulates a special kind of immune cell called regulatory T cell that usually suppresses inflammation and enable its own colonization. So in a sense, it, 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 it opens a door for the immune system to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, to let you pass because I know that you're a good microbe and, 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 and then I'll suppress my immune response that otherwise I will have generated against you. Another example is a, a set of molecules called uh, short-chain fatty acids. And these are metabolites that are produced by fermentation of, uh, of dietary fiber. Um, they regulate the size and the function of, again, this uh, particular T cell population called Tregs or, or regulatory T cells and can protect against uh, many inflammatory uh, um, events, among them uh, colitis. So, so these are only two of many potential uh, interactions between bacteria and the immune system under normal circumstances. Now, under normal circumstances, here depicted in the uh, panel A, the microbiome together with the genome of the host, which is unmodified throughout our lifetime, might determine the type of immune response that we will elicit. 
So in normal circumstances, in, 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 uh, when, when there is an equilibrium of, uh, in, in the gut microbiota, then there is an equilibrium in the type of immune responses here depicted as the blue, as, as the immunoregulatory Treg response, and the red as an uh, inflammatory TH17 response. So when they're in equilibrium, then uh, everything is in harmony. Now, however, our genome will not change, but the microbiome might change. So the myocardial dysbiosis, whereby in this case, the yellow bacteria outnumber the green bacteria. And this is an oversimplified example, but in this case, if the yellow bacteria uh, outnumbers the green bacteria, then the uh, Th17 cell population, the red cells, are more stimulated because they respond more to the yellow bacteria. And then there's an imbalance of inflammatory responses towards a disease state. Similarly, the opposite could also happen that the, the green bacteria, which are uh, in this case, uh, the ones that stimulate the Treg, might disappear in a given dysbiosis state. And in that case, then the Treg population suffers and, 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 and diminishes, thereby again, tilting the balance towards a pro-inflammatory state, which if it's uh, um, sustained over time, it may lead to disease. So, so this is an, an example of how dysbiosis in the gut, together with our own genome, together with our own innate ability to respond to pathogens or to, uh, to certain kinds of bacteria might determine our susceptibility to disease. So turning the page now and focusing more on, on the role of bacteria and the central nervous system, uh, I'd like to, to bring to your attention some studies that were uh, conducted uh, now uh, a little over 10 years ago in the lab of Lloyd Casper, uh, back then at Dartmouth University, where he showed for the first time that if you treat mice with wide-spectrum antibiotics, then they become resistant to brain inflammation. And EAE here stands for uh, Experimental Autoimmune Encephalomyelitis. This is an experimental model of brain inflammation that resembles many aspects of human multiple sclerosis. So this discovery was uh, really surprising because for the first time it showed that you need a normal microbiota to produce an immune response against a, a brain antigen. So this was uh, really groundbreaking at the time. And this effect was associated with a reduction in inflammatory cytokines and, and an increase in anti-inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-10 and IL-13, and in the increase of the immunoregulatory population known as T-Rex. So uh, his lab also showed that uh, oral administration of PSA, polysaccharide A, from uh, these bacteria called Bacteroides fragilis protected mice from EAE, and this protection was related to an interleukin-10 uh, increased production. Another interesting fact was that if one monocolonizes a group of mice 
in which microbiota had been depleted via antibiotics or, or, or some other way, if one monocolonizes, so if one colonizes the gut of those mice with a single bacterial species, in this case, segmented filamentous bacteria, this is a mouse uh, uh, bacteria that usually colonizes mouse and not humans, then uh, investigators were able to restore the necessary TH17. Remember, TH17 is that pro-inflammatory response that is necessary to mount an immune response against a challenge that is given to induce EAE. So it only took segmented filamentous bacteria to restore that susceptibility after all bacteria had been depleted. So in this case, segmented filamentous bacteria was associated directly with uh, stimulation of a pro-inflammatory immune response. So now we move on to more functional types of studies. And this was work performed by uh, the laboratory of Harmut Weckerle and colleagues in the Max Planck Institute in Munich. And what they've shown for the first time, uh, and this was also 10 years ago, was that they they had engineered uh, a mouse strain so that it will respond exclusively to a particular epitope, to a particular region of a protein known as myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein, MOG. And this protein is highly immunogenic. And MOG, it's only expressed in the brain. Therefore, if these mice are responding aggressively to MOG, eventually there will be, they will trigger an autoimmune response to MOG and they will develop a disease similar to multiple sclerosis spontaneously. No uh, stimulation of any kind. As long as you wait long enough, almost 80% of the mice will develop disease after 30 weeks uh, of age. This is if they were kept under gem, under a specific pathogen-free conditions, SPF. What this is, is the regular mouse facility in a research uh, setting, which is devoid of uh, specific pathogens, viruses and, and mites and, and so on. But they, of course, uh, um, allow the colonization of normal microbiota. So these mice have a a normal microbiota in their guts. And if so, they develop the disease. However, if they are maintained in a germ-free state, meaning either by, again, um, uh, keeping them on wide spectrum antibiotics, or like in this case, keeping them in a bubble, completely isolated from the exterior in since birth, so that they can now be colonized by anything. They're completely germ-free, completely sterile. These mice don't get sick. So again, showing that bacterial colonization of the gut is necessary to mount an immune response directed against the brain. 
And interestingly enough, when these mice were colonized, when these mice that will not get sick because they were germ-free, they were colonized with microbiota from their litter mates, they now acquire against, again, the sensitivity to develop the disease. So this was a very elegant setting to show that the bacteria in the gut are necessary to mount an immune response against the brain. So now I would like to introduce the international MS microbiome study. This is a study that um, our group at UCSF is leading. And this is an international effort involving several centers in the US, Canada, Europe, and Argentina. And the goal of the international microbiome study is to become really a reference study in the, in the field. And it has a very particular study design in which for each patient with multiple sclerosis, a household control is recruited into the study. And the reason for recruiting a household control is we want to become independent of all the other things that can possibly modify the gut microbiota, such as diet, most notably, but also, uh, as you may have heard in previous talks, the presence of pets in the house, the presence of babies, whether you live in a rural setting or in an urban area, and so on, all of those may influence a composition of the gut microbiota independent of the disease. So if we recruit for every uh, person with MS, we recruit a household control without the disease, if any differences in the microbiota exist, then we can associate them to the disease with higher certainty. So um, this is a very, very large study. We're aiming at 2,000 cases and 2,000 controls. And for each case, we um, collect uh, stool samples, blood samples, and dietary questionnaires. Of course, we want to know what they're eating. And also a clinical questionnaire. We want to know how they're doing in, 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 their, in their disease journey. So data that is coming out from that study, and this is we're getting into immunology terrain. So I'll, I'll be slow here are very, very interesting. And this was one of the first experiments that we performed. We wanted to know if microbiota from an MS patient is in any way different than microbiota coming from a healthy control with regards to the immune system. So does the immune system see microbiota from MS any differently than microbiota from a healthy individual? And the, the uh, essay that we set up to answer this question was to culture together uh, extracts of microbiota from uh, patients or controls together with blood cells. And then we stimulated those blood cells, which contain lymphocytes, into a uh, Treg polarizing condition. So we, we uh, pushed those cells in vitro to become Treg. And we measure whether the presence of MS bacteria or healthy bacteria will affect in any way the development of these uh, Treg cells, which are so important to control inflammation. And what we found was that uh, microbiota from MS patients were less efficient at inducing Tregs than microbiota from healthy controls. So we didn't know whether they were how different they were in terms of the composition 
but functionally, the immune system saw them as very different. So the next step was, okay, now we want to know what is exactly the difference between MS microbiota and healthy microbiota. So, and this is a summary of um, a very large experiment involving several dozen individuals at this point. And each of these dots represents a bacterial taxa. And here we can see that on the right-hand side, these are the bacteria that are more represented among MS cases. And on the left-hand side, these are the bacteria that are less represented among MS cases. And here I'm highlighting a few taxa because uh, we wanted to, to do functional studies with those to see what we could learn. And here we picked uh, three genera, Acinetobacter, Acromancia. These two were higher in MS than in controls, so more prevalent in MS than in controls. And then we chose Parabacteroides, which was significantly less prevalent. This is a, a log scale in, 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 in MS than in controls. So then we perform similar assay than we perform at the beginning, trying to understand what happens if we culture or if we put together uh, now a single species. Now, Acromancia, uh, sorry, in this case, Acinetobacter calcoaceticus, and we uh, together with with um, with T cells, and then we differentiate those T cells towards T regs. What would happen? And this is a I don't know if you're familiar with this type of plot, but this is a flow cytometry analysis. And what this uh, uh, contour plot represents is the density of cells that stained with two fluorescent markers on the um, y-axis is FOXP3, which is a transcription factor typical of uh, Tregs, And on the x-axis is the intensity of CD25, which is a membrane marker characteristic of CD4 positive T cells um, uh, that are uh, expressing the interleukin-2 receptor. So in this case, the Tregs are defined by those cells that are above the threshold of both CD25 and FOXP3. And in this case, if we don't put any bacteria, we can differentiate about 26% of those cells. However, if we incubate those cells with Acinetobacter calcoceticus, that uh, proportion gets significantly reduced. And this is the representation over more and more samples. So this is, uh, if we look at, at, at many, uh, samples from, from many patients, then we can see uh, uh, that overall we see a, an inhibition of the capacity to um, uh, stimulate uh, Tregs when they are in contact with Acinetobacter calcoceticus. Similarly, when we do the same experiment with another of the uh, species, the bacterial species that were more represented among MS cases, we see that Acromancia mucinephila increases Th1 lymphocytes. These are a type of lymphocyte that expresses large quantities of interferon gamma. Interferon gamma is a cytokine that stimulates an immune response. It's highly inflammatory. It attracts more cells to the site of inflammation. So we see that Acromancia mucinephila significantly stimulates the uh, production of Th1 lymphocytes. 
On the other hand, the bacteria that was less represented among MS cases, Parabacteroides, Distesonis, we found that when culture with, uh, with blood cells, it stimulates them to produce interleukin-10. So interleukin-10 is a cytokine associated with immunosuppression. So that makes sense. Again, the two bacteria that were found more prevalent among MS cases had a pro-inflammatory effect in vitro. The bacteria that was less inflammatory among uh, that was less prevalent among MS patients had an immunoregulatory effect, an anti-inflammatory effect. So the direction was was uh, uh, made sense for us to start making a mental model of what might be happening. Of course, the question of okay, is this cause or consequence always comes up? Are we really seeing these changes because of a mass, or does a mass happen because of these changes? And the best way that we have to answer this question is to conduct uh, research with germ-free mice. And I, I've introduced that uh, paradigm before. In uh, germ-free mice are mice that are born in sterile conditions and kept in sterile conditions throughout their lives. And then we can colonize them with a bacterial sample of our choice. In this case, we colonize a group of mice, an entire group of mice with bacteria coming from a healthy individual and another group of mice, we colonize them with bacteria coming from an MS patient. Then we induced EAE and we observed whether the disease severity was any different among the, between the two groups. To our surprise, we found that mice that had been colonized with the MS microbiota became more sick, sicker than uh, mice that were colonized with a control microbiota. And this, again, was a proof, the best we could do to uh, prove the causality that these bacterial uh, communities stimulate the immune system in a different way so that they uh, have an effect on EIE, which is a model for multiple sclerosis. And we can extend that uh, to our understanding of how multiple sclerosis might develop given a genetic predisposition to it. We might think that being uh, colonized by a certain bacterial taxa, be that because of our lifestyle, our diets, our therapeutic uh, um, profiles, um, uh, <clears throat> the therapeutic drugs that we might be taking, all that may change the um, uh, intestinal composition of bacteria so that they may stimulate the immune system in a different way. If we are genetically susceptible to that, that may lead to uh, uh, occurrence of disease. Another experiment that came out also from our colleagues that showed exactly the same thing. And in this case, these were mice, remember, these were the engineered mice that will develop disease on their own. And when they colonized this, in this case, it was with twins. So these were discordant twins. They were genetically identical, but one had a mass, the other didn't. And if they colonized a group of mice with the microbiota from the MS twin, mice became susceptible to the disease. If they colonize them with a the microbiota coming from the healthy twin, the proportion of mice acquiring the disease was significantly lower. Again, different experimental setup, 
with very concordant results. So now I would like to close with our translational effort into trying to understand what might uh, be a potential intervention that may modify the gut microbiota in, uh, in humans so that to modify um, disease course. And in this case, uh, this is a, a clinical trial, a phase one clinical trial that we conducted using fecal microbiota transplantation in uh, patients with relapsing multiple sclerosis. Uh, this was a very small trial, only five individuals that uh, mostly uh, in a phase one, you're uh, looking for tolerability and feasibility and make sure that uh, you're not making more harm than good. Uh, but we also had a, a number of secondary and tertiary endpoints in which we're interested in knowing, for example, after transplantation. So this, these individuals were uh, given a dose of antibiotics, uh, they were given a, a, a vowel prep, and then through colonoscopy, they were administered uh, uh, microbiota from a healthy donor. And we were interested in knowing how long will the microbiota stay after transplantation. Uh, we were interested in knowing, uh, does the recipients uh, of the microbiota change in any way the immune response? Uh, those are secondary endpoints of this trial, which we are uh, right now analyzing. But uh, the idea is that we're starting to move into to, to think about therapeutic and interventional ways in which uh, we can modify the microbiota, particularly the gut microbiota, to see whether we can curb uh, disease that either has already started or if we can prevent uh, disease or we can prevent exacerbations of the disease. So with this, uh, I would like to close and um, uh, acknowledge uh, all my colleagues uh, from my group, all the colleagues from the UCSF multiple sclerosis uh, uh, clinic, um, uh, all our collaborators uh, of the IMSMS team, and our funding agencies. Um, and of course, I'll be happy to take any questions that you may have. Thank you so much, Sergio, for that really interesting talk. We have a couple of questions in the Q&A. So Sergio, we have just uh, first a question for clarification. At the very beginning of your deck, you mentioned that there's kind of 100x more um, genetic material in the microbiome as opposed to our human genome. Is that across our entire human microbiome or um, just the gut microbiome? Can yeah, yeah, that? yeah. Uh, yeah, it's all right. I, I didn't make that clear. It's, it's through the entire microbiome. However, the gut microbiome is the richest of all the niches. So the gut microbiome is where most of the bacterial diversity can be found. Thanks, Sergio. Uh, the next question is about kind of uh, sex differences. So can you comment a little bit on, you know, what we know about the variation in both the composition and function of our microbiota um, across uh, genders? Yes, indeed. Uh, so yes, there are uh, sex differences in the composition of the gut microbiota. And as, as, as the um, uh, one might think, there are hormonal differences and, and, and uh particularly after puberty, the sex differences are more marked. However, uh, this is one of the reasons why um, we control statistically for this. So uh, we know, so the, the statistical models that we use take the sex into account as a covariate and then remove the effect from, uh, uh, from sex uh, into, uh, into the effect of the disease. So we're trying to remove. Um, and 
the healthy control, um, of course, most of our, our couples are, are heterosexuals, but, but we do have a, a few same-sex couples which uh, help us uh, also validate that hypothesis. Thank you. You might have covered this. Is there a, um, is multiple sclerosis more prevalent in, um, uh, is there a sex, is there a sex prevalence? Yes, indeed. Yes. So like many uh, autoimmune diseases, uh, multiple sclerosis has a a sex uh, bias towards more frequent in in women. Mm -hmm. Um, In the case of multiple sclerosis, uh, about 70% of the cases are, are women. Great. Thank you. Uh, how exactly is the vagus nerve interact with gut bacteria? So the vagus nerve is the nerve that, uh, again, it, it innervates uh, the gut. So is is the uh, is where the electric impulses come directly from the brain uh, into the gut for controlling peristalsis of, of the gut and and help digestion. And so because it is directly coming from the brain, there are uh, bacterial metabolites that are very small molecules that are being produced, which can diffuse either passively or through active transportation by uh, uh, um, specialized proteins into the, the, the inside of the nerve, which is essentially uh, a bundle of, of very elongated cells. And then once they are within the nerve, they can travel retrogradely all the way up to the brain where they can exert uh, their effect. So th- there's been really, really interesting uh, studies, uh, one that I can remember from Canada, where um, when they transected the vagus nerve in, in, in mice, uh, changes in, in the expression of GABA receptors in the brain were observed, meaning that they're interrupting by, by interrupting that flow of signal, whatever that might be, uh, then the activation of genes in the brain can change. So that's, that's one of very, very concrete example of how uh, the vagus nerve can, uh, can be a, a conduit for uh, connecting the gut and the brain. Thank you so much. Uh, so this question is asking generally about um, nutrition and the microbiome. So I know Peter Turnbach covered this um, kind of at length to two lectures ago, but I wondered, can you comment um, what's known about like specifically if diet's been shown to improve or exacerbate um, MS flare-ups? Right. Well, this is a topic of very, very um, intense research right now. I'd like to remind everyone that the the field of microbiome is relatively new and there's a lot to do. Um, There's an incredible amount of interest uh, in the population in general to see, okay, what diet should I do to, should I uh, follow to, uh, to have a healthy microbiome, to be disease-free, to, to, to be healthy, to be energetic, so we still don't know. Uh, there are very early times. Uh, these are very early times in in uh, in the research, and more analysis of metabolic outputs are needed. Um, there's, of course, dietary interventions are very difficult to enforce. So studies that involve a change in diet or maintenance of a particular diet are very difficult because, again, um, 
uh, adherence to, to diets can be difficult to, uh, to enforce and to, to follow. So metabolic studies, whereas the blood uh, metabolism and the bacterial metabolism in the gut are measured are the most direct um, uh, experimental uh, evidence that we can get to analyze very, very precisely what is the exact effect of diet on, uh, on, on our um, metabolism. However, these studies are extremely expensive so, so far they have been done in relatively small number of cases. As these studies become more affordable, I anticipate that there will be more and more studies shedding more light on, on exactly what is the role of, uh, of diet and particularly uh, what is the role of, of specific nutrients, mm-hmm. components of diet to um, uh, curb or not disease. So far, uh, most of the information that is out there, I must say, is largely, largely anecdotic and, and not really evidence-based. So we have a couple of questions asking um, if you could comment on kind of what's known right now about the link between microbiota and other neurological diseases, uh, Parkinson's listed by one attendee and uh, gemen- dementia. So can you just spend a few minutes and kind of go over the literature um, oh, literature for those? Yes. So. Um, Parkinson's uh, has long been suspected um, uh, that the the microbiota may have uh, a role, uh, particularly um, one of the lines of evidence is uh, uh, many Parkinson's patients uh, complain of constipation early on in the disease, uh, like um, several other diseases, but this in particular um, has been puzzling. And in fact, um, my colleague Sarkis Masmanian at Caltech was one of the first to show the involvement of the gut microbiota in Parkinson's disease. He's done similar studies to the one that I described here, transferring microbiota from Parkinson's patients into mice uh, that are germ-free. And he showed, for example, that mice receiving microbiota from Parkinson's patients have an altered cognition and altered behavior. So when they perform behavioral tests in these mice, these mice had altered uh, behavior. So um, they went all the way to characterizing um, a, a particular um, uh, a protein from, from uh, a, a, an organism that uh, might be implicated in that. Still very early on, there's very active research, similar uh, in Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia, uh, similar in depression, uh, it's it's uh, really eye-opening to see how many correlations uh, are now uh, starting to be uncovered when more and more of these gut microbiome studies are being performed in neurological diseases. So it's very early times, but uh, a very promising field indeed. Mm-hmm. And are you aware of kind of uh, any ongoing studies at UCSF similar to your um, multiple sclerosis housestoad studies that might start to get at um, those other other kind of neurological diseases, autism, Parkinson's is what the question specifically asks. I see. Um, I'm not aware of a similar microbiome study being done at UCSF for other neurological diseases at, at this time. Yeah. Not at this time. I know that there's discussions, uh, discussions of those, of those 
as the audience might appreciate, take some time to roll those out. Uh, turning back to multiple sclerosis, one question is, are there regional differences in the prevalence of multiple sclerosis? You yes, talked there early are. on about environmental uh, determinants. There are. Um, however, these regional differences sometimes are difficult to, to pinpoint to what extent uh, those are genetic versus uh, really geographic differences. Um, mm. We know for sure that different ancestries, these different genetic ancestries, uh, have different uh, uh, predisposition to multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis is more prevalent in individuals coming from Northern European background where the um, uh, prevalence can be as high as one in 800 in Northern UK and, and Scandinavia and uh, almost inexistent in, in uh, Southeast Asia and, and uh, Far East uh, Asia. So uh, that's mostly due to genetic ancestry. However, um, Geographical location has also been implicated in uh, um, uh, epidemiological studies uh, and attributing a what is called a latitude effect. So this was a very um, interesting studies done almost 30 years ago now, where individuals who migrated from a high prevalence area to a low prevalence area will carry the risk of origin if they migrated before puberty, uh, sorry, after puberty. However, if they migrated before puberty, they will acquire the risk of the destination. Again, suggesting, oh, <laughs> suggesting that, that uh, the maturity of the immune system, whatever that takes place, even in a high prevalence area or in a low prevalence area, will determine your lifetime risk. Uh, this question, I'm curious if you've gathered any information about stress levels in your experiment uh, that has a member of the household of a person with MS as a control. I'm thinking there could be different levels of chronic stress between individuals in the household. Yes. Uh, um, to a certain extent, this is something we indirectly can measure um, through uh, metabolites, so cortisol levels and, and so on. However, this is a very tricky um, uh, question because one might be stressed because of the disease and, and not have the disease because of stress. So again, this is one of those mm -hmm. uh, cause or consequence questions. An association may be found, but then to try to find out the causality, uh, one will need to do additional experiments. So Sergio, while we wait for a couple more questions, can you just comment on other kind of diseases that you, um, that your group is studying? And we haven't touched really at all on kind of uh, integrating the mic. Can you talk a little bit about spoke um, generally and uh, the power that adding the microbiome uh, data might be to do that and our ability to prevent, predict and treat disease? Yeah. So again, I, I wanted to keep uh, focused and, and, and not, not go uh, uh, very broad, but you're right. Um, the work that we're doing on the computational side of the lab is very important because we really want to create a system that allows us to integrate the different data modalities that we gather from patients. Um, where I'm particularly interested in uh, understanding the disease from an integral point of view, not just one aspect. And um, spoke in that sense is, is a uh, tool that allows us to 
uh, integrate data. Uh, Spoke is a database of databases. It contains millions and millions of concepts related by their biologically uh, meaningful links. So genes, diseases, uh, we have 10,000 diseases, every gene in the genome, 5,000 bacterial organisms. All that information, all the metabolism, all the pathways is all in one place. So that allows us to, for example, um, embed data from a single patient onto spoke, and then we can navigate through the microbiome, the individual's genome, individual lab uh, tests that that individual may have, uh, clinical outcomes, uh, symptoms, medications. So all that can be understood in the context of biology through something like spoke. So this is relatively early, but it's it's a very, very promising technology that we're applying not only to multiple sclerosis, but to Parkinson's disease, dementias, and now we're getting into uh, trying to use these to predict outcomes in, in many other chronic conditions. Thank you so much. A uh, couple of two questions, uh, looks like final two questions have come in. One, is obesity um, a risk factor for development of uh, multiple sclerosis? Um, well, uh, yes, this has been um, assessed by uh, statistical and epidemiological analysis. Uh, there are several uh, um, risk factors that are um, that have been identified um, in MS, and obesity is one of them. So um, this may have to do with, uh, again, cause or consequence with the dysbiosis of the gut and different immune responses um, uh, between um, obese and lean uh, individuals may have. So we know that um, in obesity, there's a uh, chronic inflammation. And over long periods of time, if you are genetically predisposed to an autoimmune disease, chronic inflammation will eventually um, end up in, in an autoimmune disease. So uh, the short answer is, is yes, there is evidence. So with that, we are going to go ahead and close out this lecture. Thank you for joining us. For joining us. Thank you so much to Dr. Sergio Baranzini for his um, lecture, and we will see you next time. Thank you, everyone, and good evening. Thank you. Good evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.